Chapter 24, we, we wrapped it up last week. We looked at how Paul ministered to Governor Felix and his wife, Drusilla, how he spoke with them about their unrighteousness, lack of self-control, and God's judgment. Um, unfortunately, they were unwilling to repent and believe the gospel. Uh, as a favor to the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison for two years until the end of his term. Felix was succeeded by a guy named Festus. That's where we left off. That's an extremely abbreviated version of the sermon and text, but that's where we left off, and we're going to pick it back up at chapter 25, verse 1. I think it'd be befitting to pray one more time. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in our midst. Without your work and your power, nothing happens, and so uh, I pray, Lord, that you would send the Spirit anew uh, in power to uh, apply the word of God to our hearts today and to minister to us and to sanctify and change us. And maybe there might be one here that has yet to come to know you in a saving way, that you would do a saving work as well as sanctifying work. And so we, we, we ask, Lord, that you would move in power in our midst. May you impact us through the scripture. May we be changed. May we love you more, love each other more, and be holy. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to pick it right up at verse 1. Are you there? You ready to go? Narrative picks back up and says, Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. When Festus arrived on the scene at Caesarea, which was the seat of the Roman government in the province of Judea, Somebody informed him of the situation with the Apostle Paul. Somebody said, we've got a prisoner. In fact, I think Paul was probably the most famous prisoner and noted prisoner they'd ever had in any of their jails or anything there because he was just so well known as a missionary and, and this person that was just everywhere doing these things. And so somebody said to Festus, maybe he looked at the records, maybe he looked at the inmate chart, maybe he, I don't know. I would imagine that Paul was still being kept in a section of his mansion, so I don't know how you, uh, you know, don't notice that you've got a guy dwindling away in your dungeon. But in any case, he was informed. I mean, it's like the first thing that happens we see in the narrative. He takes office and someone says, hey, by the way, we've got a guy who's just been languishing in jail for the last couple of years. And so somebody tells him, somebody informs him of the situation, and then Unlike his predecessor, Felix, right, the last governor, Festus was not a procrastinator. He was not the kind of guy that swept things under the rug or said, okay, thanks for letting me know about this Paul guy who's in jail. I'll deal with that after I acclimate and, you know, kind of find my, 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 my wings in this new venture that I'm doing. I'll just, I've got other things to focus on or we'll let Harry or Fred over there, no, not to you, Harry Handley, but, you know, we'll let somebody else deal with the situation. I mean, isn't that from chapter 24, isn't that, who Felix was, he was just sort of this guy that just did not really want to deal with things head on or situations and wanted to constantly pawn them off. And what we see here with Festus is this guy, within just a few days of him coming into the, you know, into office, into this place, he's already on his way to Jerusalem to speak with Paul's accusers. I mean, that's just incredible. 
it's like we look at chapter 24 and Luke, our author and historian, wants us to see, gain an image of Felix who was a mediocre governor at best, a procrastinator, a sandbagger, someone who didn't take responsibility. And right when we begin to read the narrative about Festus, it's completely different. There's a reason why Luke includes these little nuances and details. He wants, us to, he, he wants us to gain an image of the type of character, the type of people these were. I, I love Luke in that he's an accurate historian and author. He's very, un, and, and he, is a, he was a believer, okay? And so, but he's very unbiased in that he recorded things just as they are. If somebody, even though they didn't know Jesus did good things, he recorded them. And if somebody who didn't know Jesus did stupid things, he recorded them. And so we see a contrast here right in the first verse between the last governor and the new governor. And that really is going to set the stage for this narrative that includes Festus. It's really going to just sort of catapult us into this thing here. Within just three days, he's already on his way to Jerusalem to find out what is going on with this Paul guy who's sitting in my dungeon. I better go check this out. Verse 1 speaks to Festus's character and attitude. And he was, according to historians, younger than Felix. He was quite young to be a governor. He was far less experienced. But we see very clearly in the verse that he wanted to do what was Right, He wanted to resolve the issue between the Jews and Paul as quickly as possible. We might say that Festus was a man of action. And like I said, that's a contrast from the last dude. Now, Felix had been removed and replaced by Emperor Nero. It wasn't like his term came to an end or he was voted out. He was actually physically removed from office. Uh, I think that Nero had just had enough of him and his incompetence. I mean, haven't we seen that in chapter 14, incompetence? Not being able to resolve certain issues, you know, not being able to govern and to do what's right. You can't be at, at this level in office and be this incompetent. That's a terrible example to the people that you govern, right? Oh. I'm not saying that you can't have that kind of scenario because we see that today. <laughs> it happens all the time that you have incompetent people in office that really can't lead. But then we need to remember something very importantly. It's the people that put them in office. Whoever's in office is a reflection of the people. And we seem to forget that like as if maybe Obama just somehow slipped in in the middle of the night and took office. He was voted in by the majority of people in this nation. He is a representative of the people of this nation. And so when we rail against him, we're railing against two-thirds or, or whatever. And so we need to keep that in mind that we put people in office. And so anyways, this guy was removed forcibly because he was incompetent. He had failed in his office. Now Festus was Nero's appointed person, his top choice, his golden boy, and so he just took one dude and just said, you're out of here. You're terrible. I'm putting in my guy. And that's what's happened. Now, interestingly, Nero is known as one of the worst uh, persecutors of the Christian church in antiquity, in history. He is known as one of the worst. He was the guy that turned Christians later on into human candles, dipped them in tar, lit them on fire while they were alive, fed them to lions. He was one of the worst. He was... 
to the Christians in his day, Hitler to the Jews in our day. He was terrible. He massacred Christians. But he did not begin that way. Isn't it true that some people start off, most people start off really well and do a pretty good job and then over time they become more and more corrupt and things happen and the direction changes and they become someone that, you know, you, you can't even recognize anymore. Some of you are saying, that's my husband. You know, when we started it was really cool and then, you know, just kind of, I hope that's not your husband or your wife. I think some people would not admit to that. I, I, I tell you, things have just gotten better with my marriage. I hope you can hear me, honey. I need to drill a hole right here. So when she's down in kids, she can hear, you know. And then I just need to step on it when I say things that I shouldn't say. But, you know. Marriage should get sweeter over the years, right? Well, that's not always the case. Sometimes people start out really well and then... They don't end well or they become progressively worse. And that is the situation with Nero. In the early days of his reign, he was level-headed. He was fair. He was even, and this is hard to believe, somewhat benevolent. He actually fired and removed Felix for committing unlawful acts against protesters in Caesarea. That's ultimately why Felix was removed because people started protesting the government and these sorts of things and, and Felix met that with brutality and harshness and force and violence and Nero did not like the way that he responded and so he was removed. And so isn't it kind of hard to imagine that Emperor Nero, like the worst Roman emperor of all time who killed Christians and slaughtered them actually took someone out for being violent? That's kind of like, Phil, are you feeding us a line? Just read Josephus. Study the stuff for yourself. He became worse. And so, and that really kind of plays into later when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Why would Paul appeal to Caesar Nero when Nero was at his worst? I would say, I never want to go to Caesar. Right? Don't ever send me to him. But Paul is, says later on, I'd like to go talk to him. Why? Because Nero wasn't a terrible guy at this point. Interesting. Now let's look at what happened when Festus arrived in Jerusalem, right? He, he came on the scene in Caesarea, and then just a couple of days later, three days later, he goes down to Jerusalem to find out what's going on. Look at 2 and 3 with me. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush an ambush to kill him on the way. The religious leaders began, once uh, Festus got there, they began to lay out their case against Paul. Remember the charges they presented to Felix two years earlier in chapter 24, verses 5 and 6? We talked about them several weeks ago. What were they? Sedition, right? That would be stirring up riots in Roman provinces, turning the people against the government. That was one thing they brought against Paul, sectarianism. That would be preaching for the benefit of the Christian sect against all other religious sects. Sacrilege, defiling the temple of the Jews. These are the charges. These were really serious charges. Now, they made these same charges before Festus here, as we will see in the next verse or two. They, they're, they're, they, I have to give the Jews some credit here in that they were at least consistent. I mean, two years is a long time. I just had to go to a trial and testify to something that was like five years ago, and I couldn't remember any of it. 
the defense attorney had to ask me questions to, 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 to uh, you know, stir my memory. I, I just couldn't remember what happened in that instance that long ago. Well, I'll tell you what, the Jews, just a couple years later, somebody must have wrote down the charges and they presented the same exact things. They had a pretty good memory. They were consistent. They were persistent, if you will. They made these same charges before Festus here. And they began to urge Festus, in typical fashion, to do them a favor, <laughs> all right? Favor, favor, favor. This is worse than Vegas. Do me a favor, you know? They're always wanting favors. They wanted him to bring Paul, this is the favor, bring Paul back. They urged him, bring Paul back to Jerusalem where they would hold a trial, Right? doesn't say that in the text, but they certainly weren't going to be completely transparent with Festus. They wanted to bring him back to have another trial. Let's bring him back, please. Urged him there in the text is paralleled with Genesis 19, 15, where the angels urged Lot to leave Sodom. Maybe you've read that story. Lot was told to leave Sodom because it was going to get swept away and destroyed, but he kept sandbagging. It was like he didn't want to go. He was having a lot of fun in the city. I don't know what his trip was, his problem. He did not want to leave, but the angels kept urging him and saying to him, grab your family and go before you're swept away with everyone else. That's what the text says. Those angels pleaded with Lot over and over. They urged him, leave, 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 or you're going to get killed. In a similar way, the religious leaders pleaded with Festus, Get Paul and bring him to us. Get Paul and bring him to us. Broken record. Get Paul and bring him to us. This went on for a whole week. Kept urging him. Please, please bring him to us. And I think the religious leaders were, in very typical fashion, trying to capitalize on Festus's inexperience. He was young, dumb, hadn't been a governor before, probably never even served in any political office. He just was inexperienced. He probably, because they were trying to get a favor from him right off the bat, was familiar with the way favors worked in those days and these things. And so you know, they're, 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 they're working off of his ignorance. They're, they're trying to trick him because of his inexperience into doing something that he ought not do. And that's why they're just pounding him with this. Kind of like a child at the grocery store when they want that stupid toy that's going to last. You're going to pay $4 for it. And it's broken before you get to the car. And they're on your pant leg. Mom! Mom! I used to do this to my mom. My mom would, like, literally walk away from me. She'd just leave me in the aisle. Like, somebody take him. <laughs> right? Because I would just scream and cry. I would, I would just I'd throw myself on the floor and, you know, if I couldn't get what I wanted. One time, my, I just did this to my dad. And it was like what the Jews were doing here with Festus. I wanted this big old lollipop. And you know they deliberately put this stuff at the register, at kid height. Right? Amen? You ever notice that? Like the stuff that kids want is right there at the level they can get to. The stuff that adults want, certs and all that are up here. Right? That's not stuff we want. That's stuff we need. I got dragon breath, right? Right? And so the kid, I, I walk up, you know, and there's this big old gobstopper lollipop, and I'm screaming and crying for it. My dad's like, no. You're not getting it. It was like a nickel. I'm like, gosh, you're, are you Jewish? Are you cheap? Are you a miser? You don't want to buy me this lollipop, Dad? What's your problem, right? Man, you're, you're just very frugal. No, that's not what I was thinking. I thought he was the devil. 
And, and so I just, he wouldn't let me have it, so I just stuck it in my pocket. Yeah. Got out to the car, unwrapped that sucker, jammed it in there. Dad looks in the back seat, where'd you get that? I took it. <laughs> took me back in the store, made me give the lollipop to the store manager, and confessed that I stole it. And then he paid for it, and I didn't get the lollipop. He like, took it outside and smashed it. I never stole any. Well, I, I'd taken a few pens here and there, but yeah, I just... That was a, a huge lesson, but it was because I threw a fit and I couldn't get it and I wanted it. And I tell you what, that crybaby action is right here in this text. Urging, ah, oh, come on, do it, do it. Tugging on the pant leg. Come on, Festus, let's have a Festus for the rest of us. Remember that Seinfeld episode, right? Come on, we love you. You're the best. You're the best governor ever. I've been on duty for three days. It's okay, you'll get into it. I mean, they were just doing what they could to persuade Heavy, heavy begging here. But they really weren't interested in having a trial, were they? They wanted to resurrect their two-year-old plan to ambush Paul before he made it to the Sanhedrin, before he made it to the courtroom, right? Now that plan had been foiled by Paul's nephew and Tribune Lysias, right? I think the Jews live by that motto, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's all that they were doing. They were urging him with that hidden motive to kill him. That's what they wanted. And you know, whenever someone begs you in the way that they did here, you know that there's, there's got to be some kind of false motive. Nobody does that over something. You're going to go, you're going to take it to that level. You're going to scream and cry. There's some kind of an imbalance here. And that's exactly what played out here. They just wanted to, you know, kill him and capitalize on his inexperience and, and get him to do something that he shouldn't have done, take advantage of him, and then, and then kill this guy on the way. They wanted to rehatch that old plan that they had from two years earlier. They were consistent, that's for sure. Now, how did Festus respond to their urging? Was he duped? Was he a dope? Look at verses 4 through 6a. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. Five, so, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down from or down to Caesarea. Now, Festus may have been an inexperienced rookie, but he was no dope. Their urging sounded an alarm. He sensed an imbalance. Maybe he was familiar with their old plan. I don't think he was. And what he had, they had tried to do with Lysias. Uh, but he was no dope. He, he sensed something's going on. Nobody hangs on my pant leg like my kids do this. Something's wrong with these guys. He knew that they were up to no good. He could sense that they had bad intentions, false motives. And rather than maybe, I think we could look at it this way, than exposing their plot, their false motive, he told them that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he was planning to return there soon. This is how he replied. He didn't say, I know what you guys are up to. Good try. He just said, ah, he's being kept there, man. He's being kept there, and I'm going to head back there. That's how he replied. 
Now look at the direct speech again in verse 5. Luke recorded his exact words verbatim. Was Luke there? Maybe, maybe not. But he's got the exact thing that he said. It's in quotes. Let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. In a nutshell, he said, have your attorneys accompany me to Caesarea where they will be able to present their charges against Paul. Bottom line, Paul's being kept there. That's where he's going to stay. If you want to make a case against him, send your lawyers up there with me. Festus may have hoped that pushing the case back through the judicial process, the Roman judicial process, he may have hoped that that would dissuade the Jews from moving forward. You know, hey, you're, we're not going to bring him down here and let you guys do it your way. You're going to have to come back up there and do it our way again. And maybe I think he might have been hoping that this would cause them just to give up. He even lingered in their midst for a few more days, giving them a chance to call it quits, right? Not staying with them more than eight to ten days or so. Uh, I don't know about you, but if, if I just became governor and I've got all this money and, 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 and all this power, if I go to Jerusalem, it's not to hang around with a bunch of religious guy who wears dresses. It's to go to the temple. It's to go around and look at the city, the community. It's to, it's to, it's to experience Jerusalem, which is in my province, he may have never even been there before. I don't know. I doubt it. But you don't go there to hang out with a bunch of fanatical, zealous religious guys. And yet we see in the text here, he stayed with them. He lingered in their midst. He stayed eight, ten days with these guys. Why? For GP, general purpose? Or because they were a bunch of fun guys to hang around with? Remember, they were hanging on his pant legs to urging him. I don't think it was fun. I don't think it was a vacation. He was staying, trying to afford them an opportunity just to stop. Stop with the shenanigans. I can't think of any other reason why he would linger with these guys unless he was trying to get to know them and trying to figure out how it works on their side and on his side and how the favors and the bribes would work and, you know, and the secret handshakes. Maybe that's what he was up to. I don't think the text supports that. The fact of the matter is, is that they did not, while he lingered in their midst, they, he did, they did not give up. They did not call it quits. They did not say, well, forget about it. We'll just drop the charges and you do with them what you want up there. They hated Jesus too much to do that. They hated Paul and the gospel too much to give up. They would not be persuaded, I think, if Festus lingered for a month or two months or three months. If they were willing, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 23, if these types of guys were willing to travel over land and sea to win a single convert to the religion, they would also be willing to travel to Caesarea a million times to eliminate an enemy of their religion, would they not? Yes. You just think about that. These guys were not going to give up. Why? Because the devil doesn't give up. The devil at the end of time doesn't just give up and, and just say, okay, I'm going to stop my assault on God and all that. He actually has to be conquered, subdued. He has to be stopped physically. And you can see that these guys are carrying out his will against the gospel. That's the kind of enemy that we're dealing with here, guys. And a relentless, persistent enemy 
who never stops. He has to be stopped. That's who you're dealing with when we're talking about the devil and the demons. And that's exactly who these guys serve. And they would never admit to that. They would never say, yes, we're servants of Satan. They thought they were servants of the most high God. But in actuality, they were opposing the gospel, which means they were servants of Satan. And their persistency and consistency and urging and desire to go all the way represents the passions and desire and fortitude of our enemy. And we need to be so mindful of that. He does not stop. There isn't a minute that doesn't go by where he isn't somewhere in the world causing death and destroying lives, tempting us endlessly. How often are you tempted with sin? How often is he whispering in your ear, do it? He is a relentless pursuer of us. Now look at verses six, and he's a defeated enemy, by the way, just so you know. He, he was defeated on the cross. Jesus disarmed the principalities, the authorities of this world. He has defeated his time is short. So let's, let's make sure that we understand. He's, he's, like, he's like that last general out there on the battlefield who looks out and sees that he's lost the war, but he's still shooting. That's what the devil's like. He's lost. He's been defeated and he will be completely defeated in the future. In any case, look at 6b through 7. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Festus didn't waste any time. The day after he arrived back in Caesarea, he took his seat on the tribunal. What do we see here? Another example of this guy who was a responsible leader. I don't know about you, but, you know, I go down to Jerusalem and I spend a week with those particular types of guys. I come back to Caesarea and take about a month off, then get back into it. He comes right back and the next day he's on his seat in the tribunal. Again, compare and contrast Felix with Festus. This guy didn't waste any time. The day after, he just took his seat on the tribunal. Another example of his non-procrastinating attitude and professionalism. Boy, Pastor Phil really likes him. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to show you what's in the text. Luke's fair. When Festus took his seat, he called for the defendant, Paul, and the plaintiffs, the Jews, to enter the courtroom. Paul took his place before Festus's tribunal seat or bench. And what happened? The Jews came in behind him and they surrounded him. Now this is a really interesting way that court plays out. I just spent some time in court for that trial thing and, and it was, this is way different than that. Paul comes in and takes center stage in front of Festus and these guys encircle him. They all come around him and they began to sling charges against him and make all these charges and all this. I don't know about you, but I, there'd be a lot of people held in contempt of court in one of our courtrooms if this happened because it's very orderly and one person can speak at a time. And, you know, and, and I'm, when I was giving my testimony two weeks ago, uh, every other word I said, the, the, the DA, I had objection. You know, it's like everything is just like orderly and all this. And these guys, it's like they just put him out in the middle and just start hammering him. Well, that's what they were doing. 
bringing many serious charges. Again, what? Sedition, sectarianism, sacrilege, these things. This guy should be killed. Look at what he's been doing. But take notice of that amazing phrase, right? What is it? They could not prove. That's something you need to remember right there because we're going to get back to that a little bit later on. They could not prove. Translation, these guys had nothing. No case, no evidence. They had a case, but they didn't have any evidence to support their claims. They could not prove that he was a seditionist, sacrilegious, or a sectarian. They had no evidence, no witnesses. I don't think in, I don't know, I, I guess I might give too much credit to our judicial system, but I, I can't imagine that, that the judge would even allow a trial like this to continue if there's no one there to point to what he did. They would, the judge today would immediately dismiss the case. Okay, we call your first witness. Uh, we don't have any. Case dismissed. That's it. That's what happens here. Or if the judge senses that this person isn't being honest or something like that, it's amazing. They could not prove their charges. They had nothing. After the Jews presented their charges, Festus called for Paul to make his defense, right? This is, I think, his fourth defense in the Acts narrative. Look at verse 8. Paul argued his defense. Again, he responds to each of these things with precision. Neither against the law of the Jews, right? Nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense, right? This is an abbreviated version of the threefold defense Paul made before Felix back in 24, 11 through 21. I'll just very quickly paraphrase it for you again. Okay, Luke does not want to bog us down by giving us the details over, and, or he wants to give us the details. He doesn't want to give us the full narrative over and over and over. He's already done that, so he's abbreviating here. In response to the charge of sectarianism, he declared, this is what Paul, how he defended himself against that charge, I have committed no offense against the law of the Jews. In response to the charge of sacrilege, he declared, I have no, I've committed no offense against the temple. In response to the charge of sedition, he declared, I have committed no offense against Caesar, right? Now, after listening to Paul's defense, Festus found himself on the horns of the same dilemma that had impaled Felix. Paul was a Roman citizen, falsely accused and obviously innocent, but to release him would antagonize the Jewish leaders. The same leaders Festus desperately needed to conciliate to keep the peace. This is an amazing little response here that Festus gives because it, it shows that he was in, it's coming too here, it shows that he was in the same shoes, same situation as Felix. How would he respond? And by all appearances, it looks like he's about to pull a Felix. Let me just wait and see. Paul gave his defense. I haven't done any of these things, they're saying. They got no witness, they got no proof. He's in a little bit of a dilemma, but how does Festus respond in verse 9? He's listening. He realizes he's innocent. He hasn't done anything. They got no witnesses. I got to let him go. But if I do, it's going to get me in trouble, right? That's what he's saying. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, oh, no, we're headed down the Felix Road, aren't we? Oh, mama. Can't any of these guys ever get it right? Don't any of them have any integrity? 
any real character. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, at first glance, it looks like Festus tried to pull a Felix. He wanted to do the Jews a favor, right? Felix didn't want to make the call right at that particular moment, and he attempted to, it looks like he attempted maybe to shift the case back to Claudius Lysias, where it originated. You want to go back to Jerusalem where this all started? You remember Felix did something similar. He said, you know what, I'm not going to determine your case until Lysias gets here. It feels like and looks like and smells like he's doing the same thing. It looks like he's, he's trying to do the Jews a favor by saying, well, you know, maybe we'll just go ahead and kick it back to Claudius Lysias or something of that nature. And that way I won't get in trouble. Paul won't go free, but I also won't get in trouble because I'm doing what the Jews actually want. They urged me and urged me and urged me. That's what it looks like. But was that what Festus was actually trying to do here? Was he trying to pass the buck, escape something? No, look at the verse carefully. It does say that Festus offered to move the case to Jerusalem as a favor to the Jews. There's no doubt it says that, and that looks really bad. But notice who he made the offer to. He didn't make it to the Jews. He made it to Paul, didn't he? Middle of verse 9, said to Paul. You see the difference? These aren't things that you notice right off the bat when you read the text. You just read it and go, oh, he's just like the other guys. No, you have to stop, slow down, and read the details. He was speaking to Paul. Direct speech, by the way. And there were two major stipulations to this deal we see in the text. Number one, Paul had to agree to go. It was his offer. Without his consent, there was no deal. Festus did not turn to the Jews and say, do you want me to take him up there? He looked at Paul and said, do you want to go back to Jerusalem? Is that what you want to do? It was up to Paul. If Paul said, no, I don't want to go, then he wasn't going to make him go. We're already starting to see that he was doing the opposite of Felix, right? This was his deal. Paul had to agree to go. Secondly, the case was not, this is amazing, the case was not going to be retried by the religious leaders at the Sanhedrin like before, but before Festus at the Praetorium, end of verse 9, tried on these charges before who? Me. You see the difference? He didn't say, hey, do you want to go take him to Jerusalem and, and you guys recharge the thing? He said to Paul, do you want me to accompany you to Jerusalem so we can redo this thing and I'll be there to judge it for you? That's what he said. Amazing difference. Huge night and day difference. Of course, the trial would take place at the Praetorium in Jerusalem, the governor's mansion, which... It's the same place where Jesus had been tried. What was Festus attempting to do here? I'll tell you what he was attempting to do. He was attempting to please the Jews by moving the case to Jerusalem and at the same time protect Paul's right to a fair trial as a Roman citizen by overseeing the case himself. This guy was sharp found himself on the, the horns of the same dilemma that impaled and destroyed Felix. Younger, less experienced, and this is the kind of discernment and wisdom he has. This is amazing. 
He says, well, we can go back there and I'll take care of it for you there. That way you'll, you'll get a safe trial. You'll be protected. Pretty awesome. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm tempted to take the offer. Me, if it were me. But you got to read the Bible. <laughs> we're not talking about me. How did Paul respond to Festus's offer? Look at verses 10 and 11. Uh, but Paul said, let's do it. Oh, it doesn't say that. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried, right? I'm where I should be. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And then he says this, Dan's favorite line, as he said earlier when we were conversing down there, I appeal to Caesar. Pretty amazing. Okay, so what happened? Paul immediately rejected Festus's compromise. Immediately. Shot it down. Since, as governor, Festus was the emperor's representative, Paul could rightly claim, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. As a Roman citizen, that was where he ought to be tried, not back in a Jewish court. There was no reason to go to Jerusalem. The reference to Caesar's tribunal also served as a subtle reminder to Festus of his duty as the emperor's official agent. Basically, he had to remind Festus, who was in a bit of a situation of his duty as Caesar's representative, I'm a Roman citizen. I belong in this court. Thank you very much. Paul declared his innocence, did he not? To the Jews, I have done no wrong. He declared his innocence to the Jews I have done no wrong. And he also, and this is amazing, boldly rebuked Festus, did he not? By saying, as you yourself know very well, that's a rebuke. I haven't done anything. You want to send me back to Jerusalem, and it's okay. You want to try me, that's much better than them. But you want to send me back down there. I'm a Roman citizen. I should be before Caesar's tribunal. I haven't done anything wrong to them. And guess what? You know I haven't done anything wrong. They haven't proved anything. Their cause, their claims have no validity at all. They've proved nothing. He's reminding Festus of his innocence and Festus's duty to uphold that. There is a little bit of a rebuke in this. You know very well. I, I don't know how Paul... Figured out that Festus knew it. Maybe the case was just so clear that, you know, you'd have to be blind and deaf and mute not to be able to get it in there. But he's looking at Festus in all boldness and says, you know very well that I'm innocent. So why are you making this offer? You're, you're Caesar's representative. This is the tribunal of Rome. You, you should not be, you should know these things. And, and, and I don't think there was a hint of malice or anger or frustration on Paul's part here. Paul had amazing self-control. He was respectful. 
In fact, if you go through and, you know, read the scriptures carefully again, you'll see that in most cases his jailers admired him in some ways. People liked him. The Jews hated him. But others actually thought he was pretty cool, an interesting guy, a committed person. He was respectful here, but there is a bit of a rebuke there. And Festus needed that. He continued, said, I haven't done anything wrong. You know very well I should be tried here. I'm paraphrasing the rest of it. I am a, if I am a lawbreaker, I'm just paraphrasing the rest of his statement here about him, you know, if he'd done something wrong. If I am a lawbreaker who deserves to die, then I shall die. Paul's saying, if, if the shoe fits, I'll wear it. If they can prove that I did something wrong, if I broke the law that's worthy of death, then I shall die. Uh, he's showing that he's about justice. He's not trying to skirt or escape justice. If he's done something wrong and they can prove it, then he'll die. But he says, if there's no truth to their charges, no one can hand me over to them. There's no reason to give me over to them. I mean, you can't try a Roman citizen in a Roman court, find him innocent, and then hand him over to his accusers. That would be the stupidest thing in the world. Can you imagine if that happened here? Right? All right. You present your case. You defend yourself. No charges. There's nothing going on here. He's innocent. Hey, go ahead and take him and kill him. Huh? I think we're headed there in America because I, I now refer to America as backwards land. Wrong is right. Right is wrong. You probably will start to see stuff like this as our depravity just comes out in all its glory and fullness. As God allows this country to do what it does and allows people to fulfill all the lusts of their flesh. He's handed us over. I just There's coming a day where you're going to see these things play out in courtrooms where you're like, that was the exact opposite of what should have happened. It's already happening right now. Mind-blowing stuff, right? Like, I can't believe that went like that. What was wrong with them? It's called sin. It's called unregenerate. People don't have the spirit of God. They don't know the truth or care for it or appreciate it or love it or live it. What do you expect? Some of us need to come to terms with, with that reality because we bark endlessly against our government and all these things and, and we're forgetting that the world is in sin and our country is in sin. We act like zealots. We want God to take this country back. Are you convinced that he had it at one time? What makes you, this America is not God's chosen people. The Jews are. And there's Gentiles that are his chosen people and there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of them in America. But we, we become so overly patriotic and zealous for our nation. We want it to return to the glory days. This country is going to be destroyed. You need to come to terms with that. It's going to end. It doesn't play a role in the end times. It's nothing. What do we do then, Phil? Just give up and not speak the thing? No, here's what you do. You focus on the gospel and you preach the gospel. That's what you do. That's what you're to do. That's the mission of the church. Not to reclaim the government, to get the right guys in office. We're, we're, we're approaching the end. And some of us just want to return to the 50s. I'd say at least shoot for the 1700s. Give me Jonathan Edwards. I'll take him over Dick Clark any day. 
although I do like Wolfman Jack. Josh looked a little bit like him a few months ago. Hey, hey, how you doing, you hop skippers, ha! Can you do that? That sounded like a leprechaun, right? That didn't sound like a Wolfman. The leprechaun, you remember from Wayne's World? I'm ashamed to say I saw that movie. It's pretty funny. The leprechaun, no, no, Wayne. You remember that skit? Glad to know that there's another sinner in here, right there. <laughs> this message is for you, brother. Repent. For you. For you. What? No. Uh, the state of the state of the union is not good because we have a nation that's filled with unregenerate sinners who love sin, and our only hope for anything that is good and lovely and wonderful and godly and righteous and holy is Jesus, not a political figure or anything else. Just keep that in mind. It's going down, guys. It's circling the drain. Are you just going to let it do that, Phil? I'm preaching the gospel. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's what you should be doing. Hopefully God will save more people and maybe things, maybe, maybe that'll quell God's wrath a little longer. I don't think so. Now, again, backwards land. You can't turn over an innocent person to the accusers. Paul is basically saying that in a way here. I haven't done anything wrong. You know it darn well. I need to be tried here. What makes you think you should turn me over to them? They want to kill me. That's not justice. That's what he's implying. Because of Felix's compromise and unwillingness to settle the matter right there, Paul felt compelled to assert, to put forth his highest right as a Roman citizen. This is the pinnacle right of any Roman citizen, which is to have the ability to appeal to your president. Try to do that today. I just need to get a I need to get a hold of Obama. You ain't getting a hold of him. You could actually appeal directly to Caesar during these days. There was a lot of people in the Roman Empire then. This he 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 puts forth his highest right. If he feels, if a Roman citizen felt like this is not under any circumstances going to go in the direction that it should go in, because we're dealing with compromisers and maybe, you know people that aren't all that competent or whatever or they're persuaded for wrong reasons, I will assert my highest right and that's to appeal to Caesar. And that's exactly what Paul does. He senses, I don't think that he disliked Festus. I thought that he thought Festus was 10 times the leader of Felix. But he still felt like, okay, he's not willing to settle the matter right now like it should be. And so you leave me with no option or choice but to assume my highest right as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar, who was what? The highest judge in the Roman Empire. Can't get higher than that guy. Not in that Roman Empire. In fact, the Romans considered him a god. They deified him. You know, when in the Roman Empire, if you said Lord, you were referring not to the Lord Jesus, but to who? Nero or whatever Caesar was in place. He was a God-like figure to them, not to Paul, obviously, but Paul knew that he was the highest leader in the land. And he asserted his right, take me to him. Interestingly, too, while the always, it seems in the narrative, at least with this particular group, self-seeking Jews 
right? They were always out to get favors from the Roman officials. We've seen that with Felix and Festus now and obviously back in the Gospels with Jesus and Pilate and these others. They were always out to get the favors from him. But in contrast to that, Paul is actually trying to do Festus a favor here. He is. This is, this is the hospitable, loving, caring, sacrificial grace of a Christian being exhibited in this text right here by him coming up with a plan and strategy that will help Festus to govern well. Literally. That's what he's doing here. He says, I will go to Caesar. That is his way of taking the responsibility, doing him a favor. Okay, you don't want to die on the same horns that Felix died on? You want to send me over there? Both of those are a lose-lose. You're in a situation. You can't set me free because it'll be bad for you or whatever. And he appeals to Caesar, and that is a favor. If Festus agreed to Paul's appeal, the risky case, because it was one in that day, would leave his hands and free him of all liability. Okay, this is no longer my matter. I can start my governorship on a positive note, not having to deal with this drama or these Jewish guys. They're, they're, they're in trouble. How did Festus respond to Paul's appeal? Look at our last verse, verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Festus called for recess to meet with his own legal experts and advisors. After a few moments of deliberation, discussion, conversation about the matter, he returned to give his verdict. He declared to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. I think that Paul must have felt an extreme sense of exhilaration at this moment. I do. It was what Paul requested, remember? Going to Caesar was what he wanted. Going to Rome is what he wanted. You remember back in Acts 23, verse 11, when Paul was sitting in that dank, wet, nasty dungeon in Jerusalem. He was sitting there, and after a couple of days of being in there, he was discouraged. He wasn't sure about what was going to happen in the next couple of days. He'd, they'd tried to kill him. They tried to beat him. They had a terrible court situation at the Sanhedrin. Remember that? He's sitting in jail that night or the next night. He's discouraged. He's upset. He's hurting. He's physically beaten, spiritually beaten, emotionally beaten. And what happened? The Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me where in R-O-M-E, Rome. Paul was filled with jubilation when, this, when his offer was made a reality. Because now the Lord's promise that he would proclaim the gospel in Rome was now a reality. It, 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 the, the gun had been fired you're headed there now. And we're going to see in Acts how he does head off there in a little bit, in a chapter and a half or so. Paul was exuberant. I'm going to be. This was Paul's, isn't this crazy? This was Paul's like number one goal and desire and passion at this point in his life. To live a life of ease and to play golf and to retire and to kick back after working hard for the gospel and all that? No, to go into one of the most hostile and dangerous places in the entire world to proclaim the gospel in Rome itself. Possibly. 
possibly before Caesar. That was what he wanted more than anything else. I just want to go to El Rizal. (laughs) What are we doing here? If the reality of scripture and the commitment of one insanely sold out for saint doesn't shame us, I don't know what will. Shame on us Americans, American Christians. But you don't understand my life and it's busy and I got all these things going on and you know, yeah, I do understand it. I have three jobs and I'm guilty. Is our number one goal that of Paul to bring the gospel? We said this a little later on in one of his epistles that he always longed to bring the gospel into places that no one else had ever done it. He didn't want to go in and continue the work that someone else had started. And in Rome, in many ways, that's what he's going to do. Is that our desire and the passion of our lives to get the gospel out there to people who have never heard it? Dangerous places? No, our goal is what I just said, Roselle. You just can't read and study Acts and escape this stuff. Well, that was Paul. It was for him. That's never what it says. Part of the reason, I think, why this man is doing what he's doing and taking his family, and his family is doing what they're doing. This is a family. This is going to be a missional family, I think, that he has sat here for almost three years and listened to this narrated and preached over and over and over and has come to the realization that if he doesn't go get the necessary training and go out and serve the Lord in this new way, you probably just want to die. We have a living example of it here. In a way, we're sending our beloved out but it's really the word of God and the Holy Spirit that's sending him because here's a guy who's just listening to this over and over and over and says, I, I, he's like, it's burning in my bones. I, I gotta go. I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta get out of here. I got to go. I gotta get the training. I don't know what God has for me. Maybe we'll go overseas. He said this over and over. I'm like, are you crazy? Yes, I am crazy. You, you, it, it, one, is this how we're responding here in our own community? I mean, not all of us are gonna go down to LA and go to master's college and and do these things, although every time I go to the Shepherds Conference, I feel like I should do it, probably because it's on everything. Everything you open, Master's College, is like, ah, can't escape this. I can't make anyone do anything. I can't even really get myself to do things at times, but just may it be the word of God that just wrecks us. And calls us out of this apathy and complacency and Americanism, American idea of comfort and church and going and just going to church and, and just, we need to be like this amazing axe apparatus of change and Holy Spirit-led power in our culture proclaiming the gospel. That's what Acts is. It's the chronicle of the Holy Spirit's work in the church in the first century or just prior to it. Well, in the first century, actually. That's what the book of Acts is. It's a historical narrative of what began. Why is the church dragging its feet now after all these years? 
And so he met with his legal advisors and decided to do that. And Paul was exuberant and totally pumped and excited because the Lord's promise to him was coming true. He would be able to preach the gospel in Rome. That was his ultimate desire and goal. It should be that of each of us in some way, shape, or form to get the gospel out there, beginning in Jerusalem and moving out from there. Closing. And this is where it's going to get more challenging because this is what cannonballed me right upside the head. I got to move quickly too. Luke has been diligent to display one really important thing about Paul in the last four chapters, 25, 24, 23, 22. He's been diligent to keep, he, he's just, there's a theme here and he keeps bringing this one thing forward. He's brought many things forward, but he keeps bringing this one thing forward over and over and over and over. He wants his readers, us and everyone forever, whoever's read it. He wants his readers to see that Paul was innocent of all the charges the Jews brought against him. Has that not been something he's highlighted over and over and over and over? It's really amazing. He wants his readers to know that Paul was not a seditionist, not a sectarian, not sacrilegious, that he was a peace-loving, law-abiding citizen. Luke also intends to present Paul as a sort of model for the church. Like Paul, listen carefully, the church is to be law-abiding, peace-loving, and innocent. And innocent. Now, there's a really cool word in the scripture that describes this kind of living. You know, it's an all-inclusive term that has to do with this law-abiding, this peace-loving, innocence, holiness, right? All these things. And the word is blameless. It appears 52 times in the ESV. Examples, Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. 2 Chronicles 2, 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Philippians 2, 14 to 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's saying live a godly life that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights to the world. Amazing stuff. Amazing examples of blameless. Here's a question. If Luke were to chronicle our lives, just as he did for Paul and everything else that was playing out in the first century, if he were to chronicle our lives, would he write the same things about us that he did about Paul? This is, this is where it gets, uh-oh. Where, where are you going with this, Phil? Yeah, that's where I'm going, guys. Would he record that the people of RHC are also blameless and innocent? Is that what he would write? If he followed you around for the next two, three, four, five, in the case of Paul, probably 11, 10 years, I don't know how long, a long time, and chronicled your life, is that what he would say about you? That he walked blamelessly, that he was innocent before others. Again, the Jews had no evidence against Paul. Why? Because he didn't provide them with any. Ultimately, it was Paul who did not give them evidence because he lived a blameless life. He was above reproach, blameless. They had to literally fabricate their case against him. Their charges were based on accusations, not on truth or facts. 
The text, Luke has managed to show us that over and over and over in four chapters in the Bible, in the book of Acts. I can tell you this, if we follow Paul's example, right, of being blameless, walking in holiness, righteousness, doing these things, preaching the truth and love, if we follow his example and be blameless, the world will bring many false charges against us. Intolerance, bigotry, hatred, fundamentalism, legalism, pharisaicalism, sedition, sectarianism, sacrilege, and every other lidge and every other ism there is under the sun, known to man. When you live a blameless life, the world will make many, many charges against you, many accusations. And so we need to be ready for this. I think that the thing that we should do is consider the Lord's instructions to us this morning. Let me tell you what it is. He he is calling us to follow Paul's example, to be holy and blameless and to share the truth and love. Each of us should evaluate our lives to see if there are areas that need attention and improvement. Is our attitude above reproach blameless? Is our speech blameless? What we say each day before others. Is our conduct blameless? Is our conduct above reproach? Is our witnessing winsome? A great question to ask ourselves is, are we providing people, others, with real artillery against ourselves through unrighteous living. You see, that's, Paul was not living in unrighteousness. They didn't have those claims against him. They had to make them up. And I have to say to myself, when I am persecuted, when, when I experience trouble, the trouble of others out there, is it because I'm bringing that upon myself through my unrighteous, unholy living through the things that I say and do, my conduct, or is it actually because they're just ticked off at me because I love Jesus and I, and I proclaim Christ wherever I go and, or whatever, however that plays out? This is a, a very important thing for, for us to ask ourselves because our default is to go to, we get persecuted all the time because of Jesus while failing to realize that we're not living the way that we should live around people and we're giving them plenty of ammo. We actually load people's guns all the time. Guns that fire off all that criticism and condemnation. When I think about my life, the way I act at times, I realize I do give people artillery. I say and do things that arm them with legitimate criticism, not only against me, but against the truth claims of Scripture. Because I fail to wake up in the morning and to give my day over to the Lord and ask him to protect me and to guard me and to, remi- and to guard me against temptation, to stop me when I'm about to sin, to remind me of holiness and righteousness and these things. Man, if I just plow right out the door because I'm busy, I make a real mess of things. So ask yourself before you take the communion elements, are there areas where I am actually putting legitimate bullets in the guns of those out there in our community? It's not because of Jesus that they've been coming after me. It's because I've been acting like an idiot. I haven't 
acted the way I should. I've been impatient. I've been rude. I've been mean. I haven't been hospitable. We're all seditionists in a way. We're all sectarian. And there isn't a person in this room who hasn't pitted Christ against all other religions in a way of superiority and pride. That's sectarianism. We're all sacrilegious, are we not? It is very unlikely that any of us will ever have the opportunity to take a very long 20-plus hour flight to Jerusalem to go into the temple and defile it, as they were claiming Paul did. A, it's really expensive to travel there. B, there's no temple. And that's not even the true temple. It's right here. What kind of sacrilege have you committed against the Lord's true temple? This body, your own body, satisfying the lusts, lusts of your flesh. How have you, def- you see how we've committed sacrilege? Sedition, great example. You rail against the government nonstop, trying to steer other people to reject it. That's sedition. You rail against your employer and your boss, trying to get others to join your bandwagon because he's not all that fair or he's a moron or whatever. Sedition. You deliberately disobey the truth of God and teach your children to follow your example. Sedition. Get it? We're all guilty. Test your faith. Holiness is not a subject, a primary subject in the church today. It's not what people are talking about. It's not what pastors are preaching about. And it's what we need to preach about. Without holiness... We cannot glorify God. We cannot stay on mission. What, what kind of unbelievers out there, when they look at us and evaluate us and they see that we are exactly like them, what, what kind of shenanigans are that? Is that? For what purpose would they ever want to listen to or know Jesus if we are just like them and not different and set apart and holy? Not perfect. I'm not talking about perfection here. I need to work on this. You need to work on this. We need to work on this together, don't we? Together as a family, together as a church. And I'll close with an excellent exhortation from the apostle Peter. 1 Peter 2.12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Wow. Blameless. Then, even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, They will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Make that your goal this week. I'm making that my goal, to walk blamelessly in holiness, in righteousness, to represent my God, to glorify him, and to be a good and strong and potent testimony to the goodness and grace of God, to the gospel in this crooked and perverse generation, right? Assess yourself before communion. Confess your sin. And take those elements in the spirit of Paul who got to go to Rome. Exhilaration. Pure joy. Unadulterated joy that that Jesus Christ put himself on the cross to die for your sin, to shed his blood for your sin, to remove it. You know the sedition and all the things you're guilty of? All gone because of him. But we need to be mindful 
that they like to rear their ugly heads at times and that we need to squelch and kill those things. We need to fight and battle and battle sin. And it's because of what he did that we can even consider doing that. It's because of him we have victory and it's because of him we have power to fight. You remember what those elements represent as you go to the Lord's table. But don't you fail to confess your sin before you go. Do that, make that a point, and then take those things in all joy in all happiness, in all excitement, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Walk out of this place with some pep in your step. Go out there, man. Go out there and be blameless and preach the gospel. Take the gospel into your workplace. Take it to your home first. That's a good idea. And then take it beyond there. Let's do it. Let's do it together. Let's work together. Father, thank you. Seal this message on our hearts. Give us full measure and power of the Holy Spirit that we might live and walk upright lives, that we might be able to follow Paul's example and that the only charges that this perverse, crooked generation can bring against us are made up, fabricated. May we be like when they do that. May we be like the apostles who rejoiced when they suffered persecution for the name of Christ. Forgive us of our transgressions and sins. Renew us. May we take these elements in all reverence and all joy. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.